Section 37 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 8, Spheres of Action, Chapter 1, Jews, Part 9. An even more pitiful illustration of the miseries endured by these unfortunates, under the implacable vigilance of the Inquisition, is afforded by the case of Isabel, wife of Francisco Palos of Ciudad Rodrigo. In 1608, when 22 years of age, she was tried by the Valladolid Tribunal. Subsequently, she was tried twice, in 1621 and 1626, at Llerena, twice at Coenza, in 1653 and 1655, and finally in 1665 at Toledo. Altogether, about 18 years were spent in these trials. The last one, in which she was thrice tortured, continued until 1670, when she was in her 84th year and eluded her tormentors by dying in prison, to be burnt in effigy with her bones as a defunta. Little colonies of Portuguese, like that of Beas, were frequently discovered. Simon Munoz of Pastrana, on trial at Toledo, in 1679, gave the names of 29 accomplices residing there, nearly all of whom figured in an auto particular of December 21, 1680. They had long succeeded in eluding inquisitorial vigilance, for one of them, Maria Enriquez, then 60 years old, testified that she had been brought thither from Lisbon by her parents when a little child and had always lived there. A similar group of Portuguese, in the little town of Berin, Orense, were tried between 1676 and 1678 by the Tribunal of Santiago, and furnished to the Madrid auto of 1680 two victims relaxed as pertinacious Jews, Baltazar López Cardoso and Feliz López his cousin. There were more than twenty of them in all, and they had long been settled there. Antonio Lopez, one of them, said in 1677 that he was thirty-two years old and had been born in Berin. It was only by the most stringent caution that existence could be maintained under these conditions. Gaspar de Campos, one of the Pastrana group, gives, in his confession, some account of the devices adopted for concealment. On the Sabbath, the mother and girls would sit with reels or spinning wheels before them and, if anyone came in, would pretend to be at work. On fast days, the servant girl would be sent out on an errand. During her absence, food would be taken out of the ola and plates and spoons would be greased. They would then go to the house of a neighbor Jewess and, when the servant followed them, she would be sent back to get her dinner, telling her that they had dined, and then the neighbor would do the same. Even in the closest family circle, the utmost reserve was often practiced. Children were not allowed to know anything of Judaism until of an age at which their discretion could be trusted. Parents, indeed, frequently brought up their children as Catholics and left it to others to convert them fortuitously. Pedro Nunez Marquez, tried in Madrid in 1679, testified that he had been inducted into Judaism in Villaflor, Portugal, by Maria Pinto, wife of Alvaro de Morales. After he returned to his father's house in Torre de Moncovo, he hesitated for months to let his parents know of his conversion. At last, in 1653, he told his mother, when she approved of it and said that both she and his father, Francisco Nunez Ramos, were Jews. There were eight children of them. He knew them all to be Jews, but could give no details except as to three sisters, 
They all assumed each other to be so, but each one attended to his own affairs, to earn a living, and to live with the utmost precaution. As his sister Angela Nunez Marquez expressed it, they all knew each other to be Portuguese. That was sufficient, and further confidences were superfluous. As a matter of course, punctilious regard was paid to all Catholic observances, mass, confession and communion, feast days, and fasts. The dying were duly shriven and had the viaticum. The dead had Christian burial in the churches. Living thus scattered in small groups or isolated families, concealing their secret faith with the utmost care, and in perpetual dread of betrayal, it is not surprising that distinctive Jewish observances were gradually reduced to a minimum, and were becoming to a great degree forgotten. They had no rabbis to keep them instructed in the countless prescriptions of the oral law and the incidents of days of observance. Circumcision, of course, was out of the question. It was too compromising, and there was no one to perform it, unless some specially zealous youth might betake himself to France or to Italy for the purpose. We hear nothing in the trials of abstinence from pork, or the removal of fat from meat, or the mortuary laying out of the dead. There was an attempt to fast on the day of Queen Esther, when that was known, and perhaps on other days of no special note, as a spiritual exercise. We hear of washing the hands before meals and giving thanks to the God of Israel. Lamps might be lighted on Friday night, but it sufficed to light one and let it burn till it went out. The Sabbath was to be kept by cessation from work, but even this was not always observed, and the changing of body linen is rarely alluded to. Angela Nunez Marquez said that Ana de Nieves and Maria de Murcia had taught her the law of Moses and its ceremonies, which were to rest on the Sabbath and to observe fasts of four and twenty hours without food or drink, yet, during the twenty years of her residence in Pastrana, she had kept only fifteen Sabbaths, for fear of discovery by her husband and servants. Isabel Mendez Correa, who appeared in the Madrid Auto of 1680, when sick some years before, had vowed that, if she recovered, she would rest on Saturdays and light lamps on Fridays, for she deemed her illness a punishment for neglecting the law of Moses. In short, Judaism seems to have resolved itself into Sabbath-keeping with occasional fasting, and into hoping to be saved in the law of Moses and denying Christ and Christian doctrine. All this increased the difficulty of detection and vexed the souls of the inquisitors, in both Spain and Portugal. An exhortation addressed to the new Christians, in 1640, in Granada, by Maestro Gabriel Rodriguez de Escabillas, denounces them roundly for thus betraying their faith. So at the Lisbon Auto of September 6, 1705, where the sermon was preached by Diago de Annunciasum, Archbishop of Cranganor, he commenced by addressing the sixty-six penitents before him. Miserable relics of Judaism, unhappy fragments of the synagogue, last remains of Judea, scandal of the Catholics and detestable objects of scorn even to the Jews themselves. You are the detestable objects of scorn to the Jews, for you are so ignorant that you cannot observe the very law under which you live. A truly Christian welcome to repentant sinners, which was deemed worthy of perpetuation by the printing press. Yet in this duplicity, so reprehensible in inquisitorial eyes, there was promise of the final success of the work so unremittingly prosecuted for two centuries. The hammer was gradually wearing away the anvil, only the marvelous constancy of Judaism had enabled it to maintain itself under such conditions, and eventually the Portuguese Judaizers were to be incorporated in the church as, for the most part, their Spanish brethren had been already. Still, the activity of the Inquisition continued to be rewarded with abundant success, and indeed we may say that but for Judaism it would have found little to do. 
In the public autos of Cordova, from 1655 to 1700, out of 399 persons and effigies brought forward, 324 were for Judaizing. In Toledo, from 1651 to 1700, there were 855 cases tried of every kind, trivial and important, of which 556 were for the same offense. Towards the closing years of the century, there seems to be a decided falling off in the numbers, as though vigilance were becoming relaxed, or the efforts of the tribunals were being crowned with success. But, in a report of pending cases in Valladolid, May July 8, 1699, out of 85, 78 were Judaizers. This activity, however, seems to be largely confined to Castile, as though the Portuguese had not found the kingdoms of Aragon attractive. Reports of cases pending in Valencia in 1694, 5, and 6 show in all but 16, among which there is not a single Judaizer. It is perhaps worthy of passing remark that, in the Treaty of 1668, by which Spain recognized the independence of Portugal, Article 4 provides that the subjects of each power, in the territories of the other, shall enjoy the privileges and immunities granted to British subjects by the treaties of 1630 and 1667. These guaranteed them against molestation for matters of conscience, so long as they gave no occasion for scandal, but, from what we have seen above, it does not appear that the Inquisition of either country paid any attention to this, nor is it likely that either government complained of infraction. During this period, the laws restricting the emigration of the new Christians seem to have been mostly in abeyance, but when, in 1666, the false messiah, Zabathiah Tzivi, appeared in Palestine and drew a large following of misguided Jews, the Suprema took the alarm. The seaport tribunals were warned that some of the Portuguese would seek to join him, so that if any Portuguese should come and endeavor to embark, they were to be detained under some pretext, their property was to be seized and examined, and a report be sent to the Suprema. Some four months later, Barcelona forwarded the testimony taken in the case of four Portuguese thus detained, when the Suprema ordered their release and that in future, when the evidence showed that they were not fugitives or bound for some suspicious place, they should be allowed to proceed. In this same year, a muleteer named Francisco Núñez Redondo was punished at Toledo as a Judaizer, and for conducting Judaizers out of the country, the two hundred lashes added, in his sentence to reconciliation and prison, being evidently the penalty for this special offense. In 1672, there was another similar alarm. The Suprema informed the tribunals that many families of Portuguese were arranging to pass by way of Bayonne to France. All the roads and paths were therefore to be guarded, and all Portuguese who seemed to be seeking to leave the kingdom were to be seized with their property. Each individual was to be closely examined, his genealogy taken, his past life recorded, his destination and the motives of his journey to be stated, with all other details necessary for a thorough knowledge of his antecedents and purposes, and this information was to be forwarded to the Suprema with the opinion of the tribunal. Similar precautions were ordered at the Mediterranean seaports, but the object of this action was not stated. Valladares, who was Inquisitor-General from 1669 to 1695, seems to have taken a different view of this curiously perverse policy of preventing the emigration of disaffected apostates. August 12, 1681, he sent to someone near the king an anonymous memorial setting forth the invincible obstinacy of the Jews. Penance and punishment left them as wicked as before, resulting in many evils, such as the engagement in noble houses of Jewish wet-nurses, who infect the children with their milk, the employment by conversos of young children whom they pervert, the sacrilege of the sacraments administered to them, and the like. 
The remedy for this was the immediate exile of all who were penanced or, if they were allowed to remain, the branding of them on the forehead with the arms of the Inquisition. Valladares was probably the author of the memorial, for he makes this hideous suggestion his own, urging it with all the authority of the Inquisition, and invoking the judgment of heaven on his correspondent if he fails to lay the paper before the king. Carlos sent it to the Suprema for its opinion, and the matter went no further, but the document is not without interest as a revelation of the methods which persecutors were willing to adopt to escape from the consequences of their own acts. Although it was the Portuguese immigration which supplied the apparently inexhaustible harvest of culprits throughout the 17th century, there was one corner of Spain which escaped the influx and where the old conversos continued to cherish their secret faith with little or no molestation. Allusion has more than once been made above to the Majorca catastrophe of 1691 and, as an episode of Spanish Judaism, its details deserve consideration. In the massacre of 1391, some of the Mallorquin Jews escaped to Barbary, but the majority remained. The governor, Francisco Segariga, had been wounded in endeavoring to protect them. They were won over to conversion by the terror of death, and the promise of the authorities to give them 20,000 libras wherewith to pay their debts, a promise which seems never to have been fulfilled. They continued to inhabit the call or Jewish quarter, and, although the Alhama came to an end in 1410, its members remained as a separate community. The conversion was as superficial as was to be anticipated, and though, as nominal Christians, they were not affected by the expulsion of 1492, when the Inquisition was introduced we have seen, from the numbers who came in under Edicts of Grace, that they must all have been Jews at heart, for between 1488 and 1491 there were no less than 568 reconciliations, besides those who, by special mercy, were reconciled twice. After this, for a while the tribunal was fairly active. Between 1489, when it commenced operations, and 1535, it sentenced 164 to reconciliation, 99 to relaxation in person, and 460 to relaxation in effigy, all of whom were presumably Judaizers except, in 1535, five Moriscos who were relaxed. After this, the persecution grew inert, relaxations disappear, and reconciliations become few. So insignificant had the tribunal become that when, in 1549, the offices of fiscal and receiver fell vacant, Valdez wrote to ask what was the necessity of filling them. He might well ask the question, between 1552 and 1567, the tribunal had but two reconciliations to show and, during the remainder of the century, only thirty, together with a single relaxation, and of the few culprits the majority were not Judaizers. In the 17th century, the record was even slenderer. Engaged, for the most part as we have seen, in unappeasable conflicts with the ecclesiastical authorities, the duties of persecution were neglected, and heretic and apostate breathed in comparative peace. The reconciliation of Maria Diaz, September 6, 1571, was followed by a century in which not a single Judaizer was reconciled, although, in 1675, one from Madrid was relaxed. The inhabitants of the call might well deem themselves secure, especially as the churchmen were free in their denunciations of the tribunal. In 1668, the inquisitor complained to the Suprema that the priests of the Episcopal party talked of the Inquisition as a secret heresy, and that it was a den of robbers which should be abolished, all of which led to much license of speech among the suspected persons who dwelt in the separate barrio. From this sense of security there was a rude awakening. In 1677 or 1678, a meeting, held in a garden outside of the city, attracted the inquisitor's attention. 
It was designated as a synagogue, and doubtless there was some imprudence. Secret investigation developed evidence justifying wholesale arrests, and the prison was soon crowded. The result appeared in four autos celebrated in 1679, in which there were no less than 219 reconciliations. There was no spirit of martyrdom. In all cases it was a first conviction, and when all confessed and begged for mercy there was no opportunity for relaxation. A noteworthy feature was the absence of prosecutions of the dead, which could have been numerous had the tribunal been disposed to take the trouble. But this is doubtless explicable by the fact that as the whole community of new Christians was involved, all its property was confiscated, and there would have been no profit in looking up ancestral heresies. The confiscations were enormous. The culprits were merchants and traders and bankers whose houses and lands, censos and merchandise and credits were swept away. The sum realized is stated at 1,496,276 pesos, which is probably far below the real value of the assets seized. We have seen how the king was gradually shouldered out of his share of the spoils. The tribunal secured a goodly portion with which it rebuilt the palace of the Inquisition in a style so sumptuous that it passed for one of the finest in Spain, until it was demolished in 1822 and its site converted into a public plaza. The tribunal ordered all new Christians to dwell in the call and required them, on all feasts of precept, to attend mass in the cathedral in a body, preceded by a minister of the Inquisition and in charge of an alguazil. Impoverished, dishonored, and watched, the position became intolerable. A number resolved to expatriate themselves and secretly made arrangements with an English ship lying in the harbor to carry them away. The passage money was paid and they succeeded in embarking, but rough weather detained the ship. They had not procured the necessary licenses to leave Spain. They were seized and cast into prison with the members of their families. This occurred in 1688, and three years were consumed in their trials. The result was seen in the four autos held in March, May, and July, 1691. For those who had been reconciled in 1679 and were now convicted of relapse, there could be no pardon. A huge brasero, 80 feet square and 80 feet high, with 25 stakes, was prepared on the seashore, two miles from the city, in order that the people might not be incommoded by the stench. In all, 37 were relaxed in person, of whom only three were pertinacious to the last and were burnt alive. Eight were relaxed in effigy, of whom four were fugitives and four were dead, three of the latter having died in prison. There were 15 reconciliations in person and three in effigy. Finally, there were 24 who, although among the reconciled of 1679, escaped with abjuration de levi and fines amounting to 6,400 libras. This shows that the little community had already begun to repair its shattered fortunes, and renders it probable that the confiscations of the relaxed and reconciled rewarded the tribunal abundantly for its labors. The lesson seems to have been sufficiently severe to serve its purpose. We hear nothing more of Judaism in Majorca. During the height of the persecution elsewhere, the tribunal celebrated two autos, May 31, 1722, and July 2, 1724, in which nine penitents appeared, but none of them were Judaizers. Although the new Christians were still confined to their separate quarter, in time, as we have seen, they became thoroughly Catholic. End of section 37. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C. www.nyckidd.com.